Anytime a baby is born, there are lots of preparations that have to take place. Um, parents know, parents of babies that are coming, they know that everything is about to change, particularly first-time first parents. Um, I just remember when our firstborn uh, came into this world, who is now a teenager as a Friday. Sorry, Callie. Uh, but uh, when she came into the world, I mean, we knew we knew things were about to change radically. Um, and so we did all of this work to prepare for having a child. And we painted the room and we decorated it. And we, those are kind of peripheral things, but I built a crib and you set everything up. And we deep cleaned the house and we got rid of the dog that was too crazy to have in the house with the baby. And... And we stocked up on diapers and we washed all those cute little baby clothes that we got at the showers. And, and, and we washed them in the, what, draft or whatever that little baby detergent is. I think our firstborn was the only one that ever had any clothes washed in that stuff. I'm convinced it's tied just in a different box. But, um, uh, but it worked. We were, you know, for first time parents, we, you know, want to do everything right. And so we read books and we got counsel and we, Tried to get as much sleep as we could, knowing that our whole sleep patterns were about to get thrown out of whack. And and we took a trip together. Last, all these little things. Got the car seat strapped in, you know, weeks ahead of time, expecting the arrival of this newborn child. Because when you when a baby comes, life is never the same again. Um, that's what's happening in this story, sort of. There's one small difference. The baby being born is God. Uh, and so so I'm not trying to compare apples to oranges here. Um, but but it, the birth of this baby dramatically changed Mary and Joseph's life. And I'm not just talking about in the ways that Callie's birth changed our lives or any of our other children or your children. Now, Jesus' birth changed a lot of lives. It, it's changed my life. It can change your life. And it has changed many of you. When, when Jesus came, everything changed. History changed. And the question for us is, has everything changed for you because Jesus came into this world? And, and we'll come back to that question. But I want us to get to Matthew real quick. We, we've been preaching through 1 Kings this fall. And so if you're a guest with us today, welcome. I know we've got a lot of college students back as well. And you've been away for the semester and are home for Christmas and to mooch off your parents for a couple weeks before you go back and, and have to work again and, and get back to the studies. Yeah, I see you out there. Uh, so just let your mom do all your laundry and eat all their food and everything. Um, but, but I know we've got a lot of folks that have been absent. We've been working our way through First Kings. And the, the story of, of Kings, First and Second Kings in the Old Testament, is just one failure after another in terms of the monarchy of Israel. God promised to David that he would set a king over Israel who would reign forever and ever in righteousness and in peace. And, and you have king after king after king who comes, and every one of them is a disappointment. And there's this longing, this hoping, this expectation that one day God is going to, God will fulfill his word. And there were faith, there was a faithful remnant in Israel who believed God's promise that he would keep his word. He would send a king who would come and reign over Israel. And, and so there's this longing, this expectation, but over and over again, it's just disappointment after disappointment after disappointment. 
And so we've been looking at that, and, and as we're not going to read through the first 17 verses of genealogy, but you notice how Matthew begins his gospel, how the New Testament begins. What does it begin? It begins with a genealogy. That's very exciting to us, isn't it? And so many of you are thankful that I'm not trying to pronounce all of these names and work through this. But why does it begin this way? Well, Matthew is writing to particularly to a Jewish audience. And so to to these Jews, again, this is the people that God promised that he would set this king reign forever in, in, in righteousness and in peace and, and, and on the throne of David. And so Matthew is showing us that Jesus of Nazareth is that long-awaited king. He's the Messiah that they've been waiting for, the rightful heir to David's throne. And so to, to show that, in, and in this, the whole Jewish culture was based upon families and tribes and clans. And so genealogy was not boring to them. It was exciting. It was everything to them. Their, their whole history was dependent upon these. And it was so important. So Matthew begins by showing that Jesus is qualified genealogically and legally to be the Lord's promised Messiah and King. That's how, that's how Matthew begins. So each, each name in this genealogy, some you recognize immediately, and others you think, I think, yeah, I remember reading something about that. But every one of them is important because every one of them is a link in the chain that is connecting, uh, showing the connection between this baby Jesus of Nazareth and God's promise that he made to David and, and ultimately to Abraham. And so he said to David, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And so he's showing the connection between Jesus and that promise. So he traces Jesus' genealogy through Joseph, who was Jesus' legal father, though not, uh, not blood father. So he says, verse 16, at the end of this genealogy, he's walked this through. He says, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Messiah. And so the, that statement and the question then is, how is that possible? And that's the, that's the answer that he goes on to give in verses 18 and following here. And so we'll just walk through this story briefly, and then I want to connect a few implications for us from this familiar Christmas story. But I, I just urge you, I know some of this is so familiar that it's tempting to just kind of tune out here. You think, I, I know this, I've heard this, we've been talking about this and reading the story with our kids every night this, for the last three weeks. And, and, and so, but listen, don't, don't be numb to the gravity and the significance of what is recorded for us here. So the first movement that we'll see is just this awkward situation. Awkward situation. Verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child. Now, if we just stopped right there, that would really highlight the awkwardness. And we're going to see it's with the Holy Spirit. But, but, so, so Mary, Joseph, betrothed. Now, betrothal is similar to, but much more serious and significant than our modern day engagement. And so it, 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 the bride and the groom actually exchanged vows in the presence of witnesses. They were, they were essentially married, but the marriage wasn't consummated uh, until a later date, and that's when they would begin living together. So they're living in separate houses. The marriage isn't consummated, but they are husband and wife in, in, in a legal sense. 
according to God's law in the Old Testament, if a, if a betrothed man and wife, if there's adultery committed during this, or if there's, if there's um, unfaithfulness during this period, it's punished as adultery. And so it's that serious of a commitment. And so it's during this waiting period that Mary discovers she's pregnant. Um, now, Mary knows exactly why she's pregnant. Uh, because an angel, according to in, in Luke's gospel account, an angel told her that it was the Holy Spirit who will who will put this child in her womb, and so she she's been told by an angel what what will happen. So uh, this is in Luke chapter one twenty six through thirty five, but in verse thirty five it says the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Before, therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy. The Son of God. What a revelation to this young teenage uh, betrothed woman. You will be with child by the Holy Spirit and that child is the very Son of God. So she knew why she was pregnant. And she knew that Joseph wasn't the father, the blood father. But you put yourself in Joseph's shoes for a moment. What what are you thinking? What are what are you expecting? What you you don't know you 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 didn't you didn't find out, but you're going to find out. It was unavoidable. She would begin to show. Maybe there would be morning sickness. How would he react? He knows he's not the daddy. He knows that he's been pure. He's been patient. He's been faithful. He's kept. The promise that he made and the vows that he exchanged before those witnesses. What is, why would Mary do such a thing? How could she be so unfaithful? So verse 19, and her husband Joseph being a just man, a righteous man, and yet unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So he doesn't know the supernatural reason for Mary's pregnancy. And so he draws this obvious conclusion that Mary has been unfaithful during this period. And it's heartbreaking to Joseph. And he's troubled. He, he, he's trying to decide, trying to think through what to do. He, he's a just, righteous man. He consistently obeys the Lord. It doesn't mean he's perfect, but he, he genuinely, sincerely tries to do what God, God's word has said and obey God's law. So he's righteous. He's a just man. And so he can't take Mary home to consummate the marriage. She's an adulterer. That's how, that's the only conclusion he can draw. He takes very seriously, rightly so, the breaking of the marriage covenant. He couldn't marry an adulteress. So he's righteous, but he's also kind. He's a kind-hearted man. He doesn't want to just shame his betrothed. He doesn't want to humiliate her. So he has two options basically before him. He can publicly divorce her in a trial, which was legal according to God's law, and bring this kind of formal public lawsuit against her. That would have been normal in a situation like this, and just shame and humiliate the woman. Or he could quietly hand her a bill of divorce just dismiss her privately without fanfare, without any public hearings. And so he desperately 
desperately wants to avoid publicly humiliating his betrothed wife. And so he chooses the later option. He sends her away quietly, the text says, secretly. But it's, it doesn't, doesn't mean it was an easy decision for him. And in fact, we see that he wrestles with what to do here. He, he's torn between this deep love for her and commitment to the Lord to obey his word. And it's obvious from the next phrase, verse 20. It says that as he considered these things, the idea is he's just mulling this over and turning these thoughts over and over in his mind. What to do, what to what to do with this, this tension between being kind and being righteous and, and filling this pool. And so he's turning these thoughts over and over in his mind, playing out these possible scenarios in his head. He knows that he must do what's right, but he's also compassionate and doesn't want to to unnecessarily humiliate her any more than is necessary to do the right thing. And so he's, he's laying in bed at night, tossing and turning, thinking about this decision. And during that restless sleep, we've been there, haven't we? You've got a decision. You've got some issue in your life and some question that you're trying to work through and you and it's at nighttime when we spend most time thinking about these things, when it's quiet and we're still, our minds get active. And so he's this, during this restless sleep, he has a dream and an angel speaks to him. This is not some cute, chubby, winged baby. <laughs> it's an angel who appears to him like a man and speaks to him. So the second movement here is this angelic visitation. Verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. He, he notice how the angel addresses him first. He says, Joseph, son of David. That's like this big neon flashing sign saying, Messianic promises. Remember God's covenant. Remember the promise he made to David. Joseph, son of David. Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. What does that imply? Joseph was afraid to take Mary as his wife. He was hesitating. Uh, understandably so. And, and so there's something in him that wanted to take her home. but But he couldn't see how that was possible because of the perceived unfaithfulness on Mary's part. And so the angel tells Joseph what the information was that Mary had already received. And he says, don't worry, Joseph. It's okay. Because the obstacle between you and Mary, adultery, is not an obstacle at all. She has been faithful. The child in her womb is is not from another man. It's from the Holy Spirit. And so take your betrothed home and marry her, Joseph. And so, so this, this child is there by, not by natural means, Joseph, by, but by supernatural means through the Holy Spirit. And so this meant that Joseph could fulfill the role that he wanted to fulfill. He could marry Mary. <laughs> he could, he could be her husband and protector and provider what he desperately wanted to be. 
He could defend her now against malicious gossip and the attacks in the community because he had this word from the Lord. He could comfort her during her pregnancy, reminding her of these precious promises of God and these revelations that God had given them about this child and the fulfillment of prophecy that was evident by her pregnancy. The the reality of the virgin conception of Jesus, though, and the birth of Christ, it was not, though, simply a word of encouragement and comfort to Mary and Joseph. That's not all it is. It, the miraculous conception is first and foremost the guarantee of the salvation of God's people. That's what's at stake here. Because apart from this kind of birth, how could Jesus be our Savior? That's the burden that Matthew has in explaining this story. It's only this way, and this, but yet it did happen this way. And so the angel continues, verse 21, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, which means it's in Jesus in the Greek is Jesus or in in the Hebrew, uh, Yeshua. But it it means Yahweh is salvation. The Lord saves. That's the idea. So you will call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. And so he gives a significance of The meaning of Jesus' name. He will save, deliver. Save who? His people. His sheep. John 10, verse 11. What will he save his people from? Their sins. He will save his people from their greatest problem. Their greatest problem. The guilt. The condemnation. The power. The pollution of sin. He will save his people from their sins. We are saved from sin through this baby born in Bethlehem some 2,000 years ago. And so Joseph's instructions, take Mary as your wife and after she gives birth, name the boy Jesus. And then there's this third, third movement in the passage, this anticipated realization. Matthew makes a comment here after the angel's Angel's revelation to to Joseph, verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So Matthew's quoting an Old Testament prophecy, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. And he draws a, a line from that Old Testament text right to Jesus. And his birth. And so as Matthew uses Isaiah 7.14. Mary is the virgin. Jesus is her son. Emmanuel. He's making that very clear. Now this prophecy in Isaiah. Does have historical fulfillment. Back in Isaiah's time. There was a son. Born to a woman. Who was assigned to King Ahaz. During Isaiah's lifetime. Maher Shalal Hashbaz. There's one if you're pregnant and looking for a boy name. Um, so this this boy was born during Isaiah's time again. It was assigned to King Ahaz. But the prophecy has ultimate, the fullest fulfillment in Jesus' birth. The, the shoes of that prophecy in Isaiah 7.14 are too too big for 
Mahar Shalal Hashbaz. They only fit Jesus. And so Matthew is saying, no, this is the final, this is the ultimate fulfillment. This is Emmanuel, God with us. They fit him perfectly. So Jesus and Jesus alone could, could, could bear that title rightly, Emmanuel. The infinite, holy, transcendent creator and sustainer of all things as a baby. Small, dwelling in the form of this little helpless child. It's incredible. This is incredible. The condescension of God to come and to dwell in human form, but even to begin his life as a baby. Joseph awakes from sleep and he immediately goes into action. This is the fourth movement here and final movement. And this understated incarnation. Verse 24. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife. He took Mary as his wife. Took her home. But he knew her not sexually until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. So he, he obeys the Lord joyfully. He takes his wife, cleaves to her takes his new bride home, and they, do, they begin domestic life together as husband and wife. They are officially married at this point. And, and, and yet, though they're living under the same roof, they, they abstain from sexual intimacy until after Jesus is born, probably because they, could, they didn't want there to be any possibility of an allegation that, that, there was, uh, that, that Joseph himself was the father of this child or any other man. And so, so they, so they preserve themselves even during those months of the pregnancy. This does not, just by the way, teach anything like the perpetual virginity of, of, of Mary. That's not what this is about. They go on, Mary and Joseph go on to have normal relations as any husband and wife and, and have other children. Jesus has brothers and sisters. And so that's not what this is teaching by any means. But, but notice, in Matthew's account, you, Jesus is born, and that's it. <laughs> I mean, you blink and you miss it. You, 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 it's gone. It's not a very dramatic explanation. It, it's very low-key, especially when compared to Luke's uh, account of the birth of Christ. There, there are many details that are in Luke's gospel account that are absent in Matthew's account. Now, that Matthew simply says, and you see it in chapter 2, verse 1, the next verse, now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, he was born, and then we move on. Um, Luke tells us about Caesar's decree for the census, and, and, and that led to Joseph's return to Bethlehem with pregnant Mary, and how there was no place for them to stay at the inn in Bethlehem, and how the shepherds were given this angelic announcement about Jesus' birth. And So you have, you have these details that Luke gives us that Matthew doesn't give us. Now, that is in no way a contradiction. That is that, that they complement one another, these stories. Because you remember, Matthew is writing with a very specific purpose in mind. He's writing to show, again, that Jesus is the long-awaited promised king of Israel, Messiah. And that's the burden that he has. He, that this king came from David's line as he had to. So how could this be possible? 
through the virgin birth of Jesus to Mary, who was the wife of Joseph, who was a descendant of David and of Abraham. That's what Matthew is showing. But what you notice, and we don't have time to preach the whole gospel of Matthew this morning, but Matthew doesn't, he doesn't stall out in the cattle stall. He, he steps on the gas in his gospel account and he just, he is driving forward, 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 forward to get to the cross and to the resurrection of Jesus. He gets to the why Jesus came uh, as quick as he can. Alright, well, that's the story. And we're familiar with the story. Let me just draw out a few implications for us this morning. I said at the beginning, when you have a baby, your life changes dramatically. When Jesus was born, everything changed for Joseph and Mary. And again, not just sleep loss and schedule changes. No, their baby was their Messiah, their Savior, their God, their baby. Everything changed. But it didn't just change for them. The incarnation of Christ changed history. And so again, the question for us is, has Jesus coming changed everything for you. That's what I want you to think about just for the few moments we have left. Or is this story of Mary and Joseph and the baby and the manger and the shepherds? And Is it just a cute little story? Make believe. Has your life been turned upside down by Jesus' incarnation? His coming to this earth. So how does Jesus' birth change everything? Let me just give you a few statements. First, first possible, maybe this is you here this morning, or maybe you'll be with one of these this week. To the skeptic, Jesus' birth should give us pause. Should give us pause. I know that the virgin birth of Christ is mocked by the secularists today. I mean, there, there are, this time of year, there are TV specials, there are there are articles and magazines and op-eds that, that they're asking the question like this. The virgin birth, fact or fiction? And they're always, the answer is the same. They always think it's fiction. Um, some are more polite to evangelical Christians than others. But, but they'll, they'll find biblical scholars. That's always a red flag for me in these articles. And where do they study? And oh, what do they really think about the Bible? But they'll find these biblical biblical scholars who are eager and ready to suggest um, rational alternatives to what is presented in the Bible. And so they will present those. But but this belief in the actual incarnation, the birth of Jesus, the Son of God, is seen as being anti-intellectual. Just fiction, make-believe, religious fiction. Uh, Nicholas Kristof, who's a New York Times op-ed columnist, has been for many years now, and a well-known opponent of Christianity. Uh, But he wrote a while back, he he was explaining just his amazement that Christians in America, contemporary Christians in America, still believe in the virgin birth of Jesus. Jesus. So he said, the faith in the virgin birth reflects the way American Christianity is becoming less intellectual and more mystical over time. He goes on, the virgin birth is an interesting prism through which to examine America's emphasis on faith because most biblical scholars, there's your word, 
regard the evidence for the virgin birth as so shaky that it pretty much has to be a leap of faith. So, and maybe that's you. I mean, you may have grown up in church, but you've walked away from confidence in the Bible and its truthfulness. Or, or maybe you've, you've never believed this to be true. But I'm just saying this, you, you, should, you should give thought to this. You should give pause, and this is why. One, one biblical Christianity, we unapologetic, unapologetically contend that Jesus' birth was rooted in time and space history. It's not, it's not fiction. When Matthew says the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, we, we really believe that it took place in that way, as it's recorded. Joseph and Mary were real people who experienced real events and real time, space, existence. There really was a decree from Caesar. They really did travel to Bethlehem. There, there, Jesus really was born in a manger. There really was this angelic announcement and, and the heavenly hosts um, to, presented to the shepherds. And, and, and this is what I want you to see. There's no way to keep the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that is our only hope of, of salvation. There's no way to keep the gospel intact and to, and to deny that Jesus was born of a virgin like the Bible says. That, that if, if, he was, if, he, if he came in any other way, the whole gospel falls apart. Because how else could, could you have... Jesus being both fully God and fully man at the same time and yet without sin. And, and, and it's not possible. You can't have Jesus as a worthy, spotless, holy God, holy man, substitute for sin on the cross one day if you don't have the virgin birth as it's recorded here in Scripture. And so you remove those historical events of Jesus' birth and, and the whole gospel message just disintegrates. But if the biblical account is true, and it is, then the gospel is intact. And and it's true. And if the gospel is true, then there's no under name under heaven by which men can be saved. And so I just urge you, if you're skeptical about the truthfulness of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, I urge you just to to hit the pause button to think about this. Because... um, Think about the eternal consequences of denying this reality. That's serious. Second implication, and how should this change everything for us? To the moralist. Now we're talking more likely to religious people among us. But but the religious moralist, or just even non-religious moralist, Jesus' birth gets all up in your face here. (laughs) That's my slang expression, but... There, there are those who want to deny the historicity of Jesus' incarnation, or at least just kind of make little of it. Maybe they don't deny it, but they just don't think it's that important. But the message of the incarnation, that's where it's at. And so they want the ethics of the incarnation. They want the morality, and, the, and the, they want it to be this, the spirit of Christmas. That's what's important. Love, and joy, and peace, and forgiveness, and hope, and change, and family and all of these kinds of things that's what's important the actual account that's not really the the main thing that's just an object lesson basically to teach morality or to teach us some christian ethic and and so but what what 
the incarnation of Jesus confronts us with is the truth that that we cannot improve ourselves enough to bring ourselves to God. That's God had to come to us. We were helpless. We were lost. We were we were without God in this world. We were without hope in this world. We 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 were blind, dead. We don't need a little bit of reform. We don't need just kind of some Charles Dickens change. That's not it. We need a Savior. We need a Savior. We don't need a human interest story that we can learn from. We need God to invade humanity, to come into this sin-wracked world full of hell-bound sinners, and to come to be born, to live a perfect life, and to suffer and die in our place. And to raise and offer life to us. Uh, so, so the moralistic view of Christmas is insufficient. And this just comes, flies right in the face of that. Alright, third. Third, how should this change everything for us? Is that to those in broken relationships, Jesus' birth offers a pathway to peace. Now, Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 to 8. Now, you have a, a letter that... The Apostle Paul is writing to a church in Philippi, um, and and he's writing to encourage these brothers to be to be to, to to continue to be one, to be unified as a church. And so he gives these exhortations. But part of his rooting of these exhortations to love one another and to prefer one another, it's rooted in Christ, the truth of Christ's incarnation. Now, again, I'm not I'm not contradicting what I just said. It's just not just. The, the birth of Jesus is not just some moral lesson where we just follow Jesus' example of being incarnational. That's not, that's not it. it the, the actual event of Jesus' birth was, is important, but it is an example to us. Paul tells us it is. Philippians 2, verse 3 through 8. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And, and he's going to go on to show this is the root of all of their conflicts. They, they, they're thinking about themselves. They're selfish, self-focused, self-centered people. So are we. And so he, he says, don't, don't look to your own interests. Look to the interests of others. And then he says, verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who... Listen, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And so he, he, his, Jesus' incarnation is being born in the likeness of men and coming to die for sinners. It's a is an example. It's not just an example, but it is that. And I want you to just think of the implications of this for us, even this week. Think of all of the potential for selfishness that this time of year can draw out for us. I want this. I don't have that. I deserve this. I need this. You owe this to me. Why can't I have this? And then there's things the kids say. <laughs> uh, I mean... I'm not pointing fingers at the young ones. I mean, this is us. This is where we, this is where we are. And, and we'll have our own versions of this. Whether they're expressed verbally, like maybe our kids 
people do, but we, we think those thoughts. Disappointments and expectations. But it shows up. It shows up young and old. This is some of the ways it shows up. It shows up in family relationships. You're going to have any of these scenarios this week? Maybe it's the, it's the conflict between the in-laws who spends more time with the children and the grandchildren. How, do you, how are you going to work through that? How are you, what's your attitude going to be about those decisions and those, um, the time allotment of the next week? It shows up in how maybe men or women, how you think about your free time off work. You've got the week off maybe. How, how do you think you should be able to use that free time to just kind of do whatever you want? Veg out on the couch, be served by the family. Is that, is that the attitude you're going to carry going into this week? It's going to be problems. Um, or wives or others. Maybe it shows up in how you think about sleeping in. The husband's home from work. He can take the kids all week. <laughs> I'm going to do whatever I want. I want to sleep in and just check Facebook and all I want and just kind of disconnect and uh, you can come back to Sunday school. We'll talk about these issues. But listen, we're natural born lovers of self. We, it is just innate. It's intuitive to us. We, we don't have to be trained. And Jesus, Jesus humble birth, Paul says, it delivers this crushing blow to our selfishness and pride. This, this week, I urge you to think deeply, deeply, on Christ self-emptying. He did not cling to his own rights. Why? Because I want you to do the very unnatural thing this week and prefer others in love. That's a great way to spend the week. And that can be a happy home. And happy gatherings when you're doing that. Fourth, to the sorrowful Jesus' birth promises comfort. Um... Again, to the lonely, to the sad, to the depressed, to the discouraged, to the disappointed. Christ's birth, it brings a ray of hope. You may be in the dumps right now this time of year. Because, again, because you're celebrating this Christmas without a loved one that you had last year. Or maybe maybe it's somebody who's died years ago. But this, there's just the pain is fresh again this time of year. Maybe you've, maybe you're not satisfied with your station in life. You didn't see how your life is now. Ten years ago, twenty years ago, you, you didn't see your life like this, but this is how it is and it's not, it's not as good as you hoped it would be. Maybe you're struggling to keep your heart with when you're married to a spouse who's just in a different spiritual orbit than you. And it's hard. Maybe you're adjusting, trying to adjust to life as an empty nester. And that's painful. This, this, the kids are gone and they may not be back this Christmas. And two of you. It's difficult. Maybe you're fighting to remain content in your singleness. Maybe you're just kind of spiritually flat, dry. There's a lack of joy and zeal for the Lord in your life. The incarnation of Christ, it's this, it's this jolt of hope. It's intended to be a joy and light and it, 
It can stir us from our sorrow and our apathy and discouragement and despondency. We have Simeon. You remember the old Simeon in Luke chapter 2. He's, he's waiting for the consolation of Israel. Now, I'm not trying to spiritualize that statement. There's so much packed up into that phrase. But, but part of that is just he's waiting for God to fulfill his promise. There's expectation. And what Christmas, what the incarnation shows is God does keep his promises. Simeon, who's been waiting for years and years, faithful, praying to God, one of the few left. He holds the, Jesus in his arms. This promised one. And so I just say to you, there, we don't get to hold anything in our arms like this. But Christmas, the manger reminds us that God keeps his promises. He's near. He's reliable. He's with us. He remembers. He will never leave us nor forsake us. He hears us when we pray. All of these truths are comfort to us in our sorrow. I don't mean just sing a, sing a song and it goes away. But I, to remind yourselves of the truths of the incarnation and God's faithfulness as, as you celebrate this Christmas. If you're struggling with sorrow. Fifth, to the habitual sinner, Jesus' birth holds out hope for deliverance. It says, you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. To, 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 to sinners, there's no sweeter name than the name of Jesus. Jesus, also, he, he didn't just come to save us from the consequences of our sin also. I don't, not just the temporal consequences of sickness or, or pain or broken families or poverty or injury or those kinds of things. And not just from the eternal punishment, eternity in hell. He also came to save us from sin's power in your life right now. And so if you're in Christ, you're no longer captive to sin. You're not a slave to sin anymore. And so if you're here in this morning and you're, you're consumed with some secret life dominating sin, listen to this. Jesus came to set you free from that bondage. You may have lost all hope of ever being freed from some addiction that is, has a hold on you. But this just gives you hope. Reminds you of the power that is yours in Christ. If you, Maybe you live in perpetual fear, anxiety, worry. Jesus came to die to free you from fear. Maybe you're an angry person and you're filled with rage that just gnaws at your insides all the time. Maybe you're a yeller and screamer or maybe you're just a silent just fumer and just it's always under the surface. Angry person. And it's robbed you of joy and it's, it's made you a shell of the person you once were. You don't have to go on living like that. His name is Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. He's come to, to, to rescue you, to deliver you from your lust, from your jealousies, from your, from your love of money, from all sin. So we don't have to keep wallowing in the filth of sin. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just. How is He faithful and just? Because He came, because He was born, because He lived a perfect life, died in our place, rose from the dead. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just. To forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is a reminder of that. And finally, to the spiritually dead, Jesus' birth offers life. It's Jesus' 
mission and pleasure to show mercy to sinners. One of the most well-known verses in the Bible, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And the very next verse says that God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. That was the purpose of Jesus coming, that the world might be saved through him. He didn't just come to give us an example to follow. He came to give his life as a ransom for sinners. And so in the incarnation, God sent his son into this world. And he sent his son into this world to find all of the self-righteous, self-indulgent, idolatrous, God-hating rebels who were just hiding away in, in dark caves, which is all of us when we're born. I'm not pointing fingers at any particular group in here. This is, this is the way we're born into this world. We're born sinners at enmity with God. Hiding away in caves of spiritual darkness. And, and he, he, he sent his son into this world to find all of us. And instead of just destroying us in his wrath, he offers to us mercy. Mercy. And he urges us, come out of the darkness into light. Come out of death into life. And so that offer is there for you today. Believe on Jesus as your substitute. The one who God sent into this world out of love for sinners. And he came and he lived the perfect life that you could never live. And he died taking on the punishment for your sin, not his own. And he rose from the dead and he he lives. He conquered death. He conquered sin. All of our foes. And so what you do is you say, Lord, I trust you. I trust you, Jesus. I trust what you've done for me. I can't work my way to God. I can't be good enough. I can't be moral enough. I can't go to church enough. I can't do any rituals to make you happy. I need, I need the forgiveness and the life that Jesus offers and the righteousness that he can provide. And you trust in him and you say, Lord, I believe you. I put my confidence in Jesus alone. If you've not done that today, I urge you to do that today. What a way to mark Christmas 2014 by being born again to a living hope like little Malachi did this morning in, in a 1,300 miles away, thousands of miles away, 5,000 miles away, whatever it is. Um, believe in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we do, I do pray, Father, that, that, that this truth of Christ coming into this world would change us, Lord. Even this week, it would continue to change us. That, that um, we wouldn't just uh, try to ride on the fumes of some festival kind of traditions and uh, stories and songs and meals and activities. But we would think deeply upon what it means that, that you sent your son into this world. Not to condemn the world, but to save us through him. And so, and I pray that if there's anyone here today who hasn't trusted in Christ, who's still hiding in that cave of spiritual darkness, Lord, they, they don't, may not see it as that. They may think they're free. Um, but, but there's this enslavement to sin. And, and I pray that you'll set them free from that and that they'll trust in Jesus today. Be born again to a living hope. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.